0: my lovely bride is here, as well as my son, David, and they are sitting right down here to my right, your left. Some of you have never met my dear wife, Becky, so I'm going to have her stand. I love that woman and bought her a little token of my love. gonna talk about God's timing for engagement or if you're into subtitles rusty rice this is for you take your Bible any smelling salts Laura Lowe just fell over um, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19 Matthew chapter 19 this is one of those messages you know some of you no doubt are thinking this doesn't apply to me I'm nowhere close to engagement but the problem is when you're when you need it it's too late you know what I mean that's the kind of thing you need to hear early and I brought my dear wife here and son here for some very specific reasons number one I love her and I want to spend as much time with her as I can And so I'd rather have her here when I'm here than at home. Another reason is some of you have never met her and I want you to meet her. Another reason is I want my son to hear this. (laughs) And um, the fourth reason is her very presence validates the truth of everything I'm saying. We lived up to this. When we talk about God's timing for engagement, every principle I gave you, we observed and we obeyed. And because of that, in August on the 13th. At approximately 7.35 p.m., we will enter our 11th year of marriage. When you build the proper foundation, the house stands strong, right? And in our dating and in our engagement, i made a lot of mistakes in my life and I've done a lot of things wrong. But one thing I did right was dating her the way I dated her, the standards in our dating. And another thing I did right is we were engaged right. The timing was right and we used engagement for what it is supposed to be used for. And that's why I wanted her here, so that you know I'm not pulling anything over on you. She can nod this way or this way, depending upon whether I say what I say is true. And it is true. Matthew chapter 19, in honor of the Word of God, would you stand with me as I read to you the first six verses? Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You've noticed that, right? Very convenient arrangement. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Bruce. And he said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. The word cleave means to be bound together in an unbreakable vow or pledge or commitment of two lives to one another. And notice, if you will, that the words man and woman, male and female, are singular. It wasn't one man with lots of women. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his what? Wife. One wife and the two shall become one flesh and notice the one flesh comes after the cleaving consequently jesus said they are no longer two but one flesh now mark this in your bible what therefore god has joined together let no man separate divorce is not an option divorce is not an option this is for life serious matter right let's pray together and we'll talk about it thank you father that you in your sovereignty and in your love for us created the beautiful intimate relationship of marriage and we realize that in virtually every mind in this chapel this morning floating around somewhere is the desire maybe some questions maybe some confusion about marriage And in a day when divorce has hit the pew and hit the pulpit, we pray that out of this group you will raise up men and women who set a standard of righteousness in our land at a time when the enemy has come in like a flood. We know that statistically some, perhaps one out of five, one out of four of the young people here will experience the tragedy of divorce. God, may it not happen. Help us to approach it with our minds wide open, our eyes open, understanding the issues. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is absolutely impossible. It is absolutely impossible to overestimate the importance of marriage. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, we read this. It ought to be a neon sign that blinks across every city in our land. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And marriage is not honored in our land. And unfortunately, in many cases, it is not honored in our churches. God has ordained marriage, he decreed marriage, he created marriage, and God said, what I have joined together, don't you dare separate. It was always God's plan from the beginning, one man, one woman, together forever. One man, one woman, together forever. That is the divine pattern. Always has been, always will be. Men like David, notwithstanding, one man, one woman, together forever. It is the most basic building block of any nation. And it is the heart and soul of any society as the family goes, so goes society. Because of that, there is no mistake about it. It is the primary target of satanic attack. If he can fracture the family, he will weaken a nation. If he can fracture a family, he will bring the word of God into disrepute. And if he can fracture the family, he will render my ministry totally without power, totally devoid of any meaning. It is an area of great pressure, consequently. The pressures are relentless to come against the home. And isn't it true that marriage, the subject of marriage, dominates the thinking of the majority of today's Christian age young people Christian college age young people isn't that true you think about it once in a while don't you doesn't it flash across the frontal lobe of your mind marriage and isn't there lurking somewhere in the tall weeds that surrounds your heart that desire sure some of that thinking is unjustified because when Adam first met his bride she came along when he was sound asleep he wasn't looking He wasn't worried God was able to take care of it and provide a mate when he was sound asleep as long as he was looking for a mate he found an orangutan he ran into a giraffe I mean nothing satisfied right and the minute he went to sleep and didn't worry about it God was able to step in and through his sovereignty provide what God described as a suitable helper handmade created for the man so some of our worry is unjustified but much of it certainly is justified I don't blame you for being concerned about marriage it is of monumental importance And we have all heard statements like these that haunt us. Someone has said the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. And so some of us are haunted by that possibility of maybe getting married, which is a right thing, but getting married at the wrong time, which would be the wrong thing. Some of us are haunted by a statement like this. The only thing worse than being single is to be married out of the will of God. I don't agree with that statement. Singleness is not something to be looked down upon. So to say the only thing worse than singleness is a wrong presupposition. But some people hear a statement like that and are concerned about being married out of the will of God. Some people hear a statement like this. You better catch her while you can. And so we're afraid of being too late in the process. And then we hear somebody say, haste makes waste. Right? So how do you know when the time is right? How do you know when you have entered that period of your life in which you ought to be engaged? What are the things that you look for? How can I be absolutely certain that the time is right? I dare say that probably the problem is for most of us, we're too much in a hurry. It's interesting to me that the word wait appears in the Bible 98 times. The word wait appears in the Bible 98 times. Let me just read one of them to you. Psalm 27 and verse 14. Psalm 27 verse Fourteen, And it says this, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, yes, wait for the Lord. Ninety-eight times the word wait appears. The word trust appears 190 times in the Bible. 190 times. One example is Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. Do what? Give you the desires of your heart. The word trust appears 190 times. The word rush doesn't appear. Not there. Although the word die does appear 27 times. I have to concede that. But the word rush is not there. Many times when Satan wanted to mess up the plan of God, he caused people to rush. Many times, I could give you several examples. Abraham rushed. He rushed, hooked up with Hagar, and has affected the history of the world because of that one hasty act. He rushed. Moses rushed. In Exodus chapter 2, he had a sense of destiny about him. He knew that God had called him to deliver Israel out from under the bondage of a godless Pharaoh. And when he saw an Israelite being mistreated, he acted on that sense of destiny and killed the man. But it was not God's timing. He rushed. And spent the next 40 years on the backside of a desert herding sheep. Saul rushed. Samuel said, don't offer offerings. Wait for me. I will offer the burnt offerings. But he didn't want to wait. He rushed, offered the offerings himself, and lost the kingdom. He rushed. The word doesn't appear. So many times it will be as if all systems are go, but there's one little compromise. Compromise. And it can be the one little compromise we make that forfeits the whole thing. Song of Solomon 2.15 says this. It has nothing to do with engagement, but the principle is certainly there. It says, quote, the little foxes are ruining the vineyards. One little compromise can ruin the plan. And I don't believe that God ever intended us for us to go into marriage with any confusion at all. It's too important a commitment. I believe that it is in the plan of God for a man and a woman to unite in marriage without any doubt whatsoever about timing or person and such was the case with my dear wife and me we knew the timing was right and we knew that each other was right and I want you to have the same peace that we experienced so file it away for future reference will you please I'm going to give you a checklist how can I discern God's timing for engagement when do I know that it is right how do I know I'm not rushing How do I know there are no little compromises? How can I be absolutely sure? So I will give you a checklist of several principles. We'll start out very basic. These are not in any order of priority other than the fact that I thought of them in this order. So maybe in my mind there's a sense of priority. I hope you'll find them to be helpful. And you realize that engagement as we experience it is not taught in the Bible. They didn't do it the way we do it. And so I can't show you a chapter and verse dealing with the subject of engagement. But there are certainly principles in the Word of God that apply to marriage that we can certainly use to discern a pattern to let us know the right timing. And that is what I want to isolate for you this morning. Okay? You ready? Here we go. Number one, you should not get engaged until, and you can preface every one of these with that statement, you should not get engaged until, dot, dot, dot. Number one, you should not get engaged until you have wholehearted permission from both sets of parents. You should not get engaged until you have wholehearted permission from both sets of parents. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now, I've had people say, even as recently as last week at the Word of Life Bible Institute, when we engaged in a discussion, 400 of us talking about this, and one person in the back raised his hand and said, But what if my parents aren't Christians? What about then? Somebody else said, but what if their only objection is that I'm marrying a Christian girl and they're against Christ, they don't have any heart for Christianity, and they don't want me marrying a Christian. What about then? We are masters at rationalization, are we not? There is no asterisk in Ephesians 6.1 giving an exception clause. It is absolute. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. But the thinking is, I'm not a child anymore. I'm not a child anymore. It doesn't apply to me. Let's deal with that. The word "children" in the original has no age bracket whatsoever. It is a generalized word referring to anyone living under the roof of and provision of mom and dad. And if you are living under the roof of or provision of mom and dad, you qualify as children if you are still directly under their authority in that sense. So then people have said to me, then that's simple. I'll just move out of the house, then I'm not under their roof, I'm not under their provision. To which I say, you are absolutely right. You found the loophole, you shrewd people. However, if you move out against your parents' wishes, you have moved out against the will of God. So there is a safety valve, right? Some people say, well, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. My parents aren't in the Lord. They're not saved. The phrase in the Lord, however, does not modify the word parent. It modifies the word obey. So that phrase really means this. Children, obey as you would the Lord your parents. It's absolute. There are no loopholes. But somebody will say, yeah, but um, they just don't want me marrying a Christian. I mean, they're of Hindu descent. They want me to marry a Harry Carey girl. Okay. Um, What about that? The problem with that thinking is this. God spoke one word and flung the heavens into space, right? God spoke one word and heaven exploded into thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand angels, right? God is absolutely sovereign. He is omnipotent, no limit to His power whatsoever, and God will accomplish His plan and purpose. True? I cannot believe that one little pipsqueak dad is going to stand in the way of the plan and program of Almighty God. And for a person to object to Ephesians 6 1 as a condition for engagement is for a person to say to me, I have finally found the one thing in the universe God is not powerful enough to handle. The fact is that God is able to change the heart of a parent anytime he wants. Proverbs 21:1 is in the book. Like rivers of water in the hand of the Lord, he can change the heart of the king anytime he wants. And in case you doubt me, ladies and gentlemen, I brought an audio visual aid. A very dear friend of mine who served on my staff for a number of months, and her name was Kim Boeing. It is now Kim Fish, and she is going to come and tell you her story.
1: I, do. I don't use these things. I'm not used to preaching, you know? <laughs> Hi. Um, I have to make this quick because Dewey's running out of time Um, (laughs) let's see back in February 4th of uh, 1986 so just a little over a year ago um, I got engaged to Darwin Fish he graduated last year so some of you may not know him Um, that's another story you know if you want to hear how we got engaged that's a long story in itself but we got engaged and when he asked me to marry him on that day he said that he had already checked with my parents and he talked to them beforehand and they'd given him the okay and said go ahead and ask her it's it's her life she can do what she wants with it and so we went home after we got engaged and you know ran, ran in the house and said "Man, hey, we got engaged we're getting married and i was like that's good like uh-oh and i could look at my mom and just see in her face that there was something she was she there was something that was holding back her excitement well i kind of brushed it away because i was so excited that day and um went ahead and came to school the next day here and everybody found out we were engaged and I mean everybody knew within a matter of you know hours it was all over the place and um, probably because I ran around telling a lot of people but um, (laughs) that night February 5th we went down to the high school meeting down at Grace and Dewey was talking and he was talking on obeying your parents to the high school kids and I thought well this will be good to hear you know and we showed up at the meeting like about 10 minutes before it started and we told Dewey we were engaged and and we didn't have any time to tell him what was going on with my parents and stuff. So um, at the beginning of the meeting, Dewey gets up there all excited and he announces to all 300 high school kids that were engaged. So now everybody knows. And um, I was sitting in the back of the room throughout the talk and Dewey was up there talking. And he, told, he was telling the high school kids that one way to know God's will is that your parents will be 100% for whatever action you're trying to decide on. And then he gives an example, just out of the blue, I guess. He goes, "For instance, he goes, I won't marry a couple unless both sets of parents are 100% for it." And at those words, I just went. Oh. That's what I went like. I mean, that, that was my heart dropping, you know. And um. And so I sat in the back of the room, tears were starting to come into my eyes, and I was getting all emotional about it, and upset and talked a little bit with Dewey afterwards and with Darwin was there with me and then he had to go to work and I knew I had to go home that night and talk with my mom and dad so I went home and um, sat my mom and dad down and I my mom and dad aren't Christians well my dad claims to be we're still praying for him, they're not Christians yet I should say, but um, I sat him down and I told him what I'd learned from Dewey and what the Bible said about obeying your parents and I said so what I need to know, I said I want you guys to tell me If you're just saying yes, because you know that's what we want. I said, if you have any ounce of doubt in your mind that this isn't the right time or the right person or whatever it could be, tell me now, because I need to know. And, you know, they gave the excuse, well, you guys are old enough, you're in your 20s, you can get married, we're happy for you if that's what you want. So we went around about three or four times and I just kept saying, I need to know what you're thinking, because I believe it's God's will that I follow what you're thinking. And finally my mom said, well, I just don't think it's the right time yet. And the power of God was with me at that time because I just, no tears whatsoever, I was all just, felt just real strong and just took the ring off, put it back in the box right in front of him and said, okay, we'll wait. And, uh, <laughs> so I went to bed and I, I mean, there was no problem. And then I came to school the next day and Dewey asked how it went and Mike killed all I was talking with him and the minute they mentioned it was like, ah! And I, all day long, I was crying all day, upset, and I couldn't see anything good in it, really. All I knew was that last night I felt I had to do that, but today I was going, eh, I want to get married, you know. And um, But we waited, and I sat down with Dewey and Mike. I remember we were sitting over in the, by the mailbox and kind of talking, and um, Dewey got me to, to say some good, he goes, what are some good things that will come out of this? And at first I was thinking, Nothing. You know, just pain because I have to wait. And, uh, on that day, I, I, last night I was sitting down looking through my journal thinking, looking at what I'd wrote about all this back then. And at that time, I came up with, with six things that were good about it. I'm not going to share those, that's another message in itself to the girls. But, um, <laughs> and I, I came up with six good things and then about a week later I came up with about three more. And I was beginning to, God was opening my eyes saying, Kim, it's not that hard and I'm causing good things to happen because you're waiting. So we continued to wait and it never really talked about it at my house because we just had a real quiet family. And about two and a half months later, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I did the best thing. I wrote a letter to my parents, you know, because we're kind of, I did not like talking to them. And I gave them the letter and then I went up to Forest Home for a youth workers retreat. And when I came back, their attitude was totally 100% turned around different. I mean, I came back expecting that, in the letter, I basically just said I wanted to know what I needed to work on so that the timing could be right. And I came back, and they were like, my mom's talking about how we could live in an apartment and uh, and how they help us through school. And and I'm just standing there going, gagging, I was eating a bowl of yogurt. I was like choking on my yogurt. And um, I went out, I had to go somewhere, and I came back, and we continued to talk about it. Within about a week, um, my mom and dad sat us down, and said, go ahead, put the ring on and, and decide today that you want to get married. And wanting to be exactly sure that it was God's will, I talked with my mom and I said, what month would you like us to get married in? Because Darwin and I were thinking six months time, that would have been October of this last year. And my mom said, well, we'd like you to get married in January. And that, so this is another test. It's like, oh no, another three months. But I figured we'd already waited this long, so what's another three months? So we said, okay, and they said, pick any day you want in January and let us know. We picked January 17th, and that was just about three months ago we got married. And um, as I look back at it now, I was sitting down here talking with Becky, and last night I was going through it in my mind, and I came up with a list, and there are so many more things now that I sit down and think about it, but I came up with a list of 20 positive things that have come out of that whole situation of me waiting. Us waiting. Darwin had to wait, too. Um, And I came up with a list of 20 good things. And if we had gotten married when we wanted to, if I had said, well, I'm not going to listen to you in February, we would have been married in July of last summer. And between July and January, so much stuff happened in our lives. It would have been a rough part. It would have been terrible to have been married at that time. And another good thing I wanted to say was... um, at our wedding, Dewey married us, and we gave a an invitation and told people that um, more important than us getting married was the fact that we were committed to Christ and that we wanted them to commit their lives to Christ. And uh, we gave them an opportunity at our wedding to to pray. Dewey led him in a prayer, and he said, If anybody prayed that prayer, go and tell Kim and Darwin at the reception. Well, at the reception, about five people came up to us and told us they got saved. And... Uh, that just impressed on my mind if we got married sooner than january those people's hearts wouldn't have been prepared as they were at that point and i mean there's all kinds of things that came up that's just one that's just that's one of the real exciting ones because people are getting saved but there's a whole bunch of areas so all i can say was worth the wait and that's all i have to say <laughs>
0: Thanks, Kim. It's been fun to be a a part of all that reason um, guideline number two guideline number two, you should not get engaged until The guy knows at least in general into what vocation he is heading You should not get engaged until the guy knows at least in general into what vocation he is heading In Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 God described Eve as a quote suitable helper The fulfillment of a woman is to come alongside her husband and be intimately involved in the thing to which God has called him. God has made her to fulfill that role and function in that capacity. And there is no way a woman can evaluate if she will be fulfilled supporting that man if she does not know what in the world the man is planning to do. Girls, think about it. It is going to make a humongous impact upon the future of your life if he is going to manufacture ice cubes in Alaska or raise bananas in the Bahamas. You know, I mean, that's going to impact your life, right? You need to know it. And then the question comes up, well, how do I know what I'm getting? How do I tell? Sally Jindrich and I went to a youth workers thing this Wednesday. Craig came along as well, the three of us. And the question came up regarding marrying somebody in ministry, and how do you know if if you're getting a guy that's going to be effective doing ministry? How do you know? And the answer to that, and then they asked the question, I've been asked that many times, what were you like when you were our age? I get that one a lot, and one of them asked me that, what were you like when you were our age? And the answer is, I'm basically like I am now. Just a lot more refined right now, you know, right? A lot more compassionate and understanding and warm and loving, right? All the rough edges gone forever. True. But basically what you see is what you get and I wish I could impress upon people the fact, and you ought to write this down. You okay Paul? <laughs> write this down in big block letters someplace. No radical transformation. No radical transformation. Some people think when you put the ring on, you go through a radical transformation and all of a sudden something pops and the guy becomes the apostle Paul. It's not true. What you see is what you get. What was I like when I was a student here? Some of the people who were around like Dr. Stead and others can tell you. I was just basically like I am now. I did a lot of Children's ministry in our church. I preached every week in children's church. I ran a bus ministry I periodically went down to skid row and preached there. I did street preaching in Burbank I did street preaching in Venice I used to hold youth rallies of up to 200 young people doing evangelistic services for them I was the song leader in chapel part of the youth staff of our church I was one of only two students to preach in chapel my senior year Worked 20 hours a week and was a full-time student What I was like when I was a student here Frankly, and I hope you will understand the intent of this statement, I didn't have time to lay on the pool deck during the afternoon, right? I mean, it's the old story, too busy to sin, and that was me. And when my wife met me and observed my life, she knew that she was getting a man of a burning heart, a man who had a passion. She knew she had a man who was called by God. She knew she had a man who was being used effectively by God. She knew she had a man who was committed to hard work and a man who was moving fast, and there was no surprise. She knew exactly what she was getting into. So, you shouldn't get engaged until the guy knows, at least in general, into what vocation he is heading. Number three, his basic education and your... I sound like I'm addressing this to girls. Let me make it general to both. Your basic education should be completed. Basic education should be completed for two reasons. That's not to say, and I'm not making this absolute, that is not to say that if you get married before you graduate, you're out of the will of God. That is to say that if you get married before you graduate, you are going to set yourself up for incredible time and money pressure. Time and money pressure. There is only the guarantee of nine months that the girl can work after the marriage. Only nine months. There is always the possibility that she will become pregnant. And that being the possibility, that will put a tremendous possibility of a money and a time pressure upon you. And even if she doesn't get pregnant in the first nine months of marriage, there is also the possibility that she will expect and need and want our time, men. And if we are writing papers, studying, holding down a job, doing all the things that we need to do to complete our education, that is an intensive pressure. God always places a premium on preparation, always. And I know of too many couples who dropped out of school because of the pressures of marriage, never completing their preparation and never being used by God to the degree that God intended to use them. In Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul goes into some detail about the years he spent in preparation and it is absolutely necessary for you and for me. And I would never want marriage to interrupt or short-circuit that process. So you should never get engaged in my opinion, and this is not a biblical absolute, it is my opinion, until basic education has been completed. And related to that then, number four, you should not get engaged until the guy is capable of meeting financial obligations without the wife working. You should not get engaged until the guy is capable of meeting financial obligations without the wife working. If you are dependent upon two incomes to stay afloat financially, then I would use that as a red flag that maybe you should delay the marriage. I've already mentioned it. You're only guaranteed nine months. And if you need a girl's income to help you stay afloat and she gets pregnant, you have one of two options, neither of which is very good. One is you'll starve. The other is you put the child in a daycare center, neither of which in my mind is acceptable. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, It is our responsibility to provide for our own household, because if we do not provide for our home, we are worse than unbelievers, the Bible says. And I took that seriously. I am the breadwinner, not that lovely young lady in the front row. And if I could not support our family financially, it was not the right time to get married. I know waiting is tough. But waiting validates Love. Jacob had to wait seven years for his lovely bride. And the Bible says they seemed to be but a few days because of the great love he had for her. You should not get engaged until you are capable of meeting financial obligations without the wife working. Number five. Two people should not get engaged until they know each other. Until they know each other. I mean by that they know each other Intimately. They know how each other thinks. They know what makes each other tick. Their hearts beat as one. And there is only one way that intimacy of relationship happens. It is an intimacy, listen carefully, it is an intimacy of the heart. It is not an intimacy of the body. The purpose for dating is to get to know one another intimately in terms of the inner person of the heart. And physical dimensions in dating should be non-existent because the guilt generated by physical involvement will create a brick wall so thick that you will never get to know one another any more deeply than the physical intimacy physical intimacy is easy heart intimacy is difficult And there is only one way that hard intimacy comes, and that is when both people in their dating relationship are committed to honest, open, transparent, vulnerable, ongoing communication. Honest, open, transparent, vulnerable, ongoing communication. In 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1, the classic verse talking about intimacy and a friendship, I wonder if you ever noticed the progression. It says this, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Question, when did their hearts become knit together? The answer, after they spent time talking. Intimacy of heart comes when two people communicate. Write it down in big, bold capital letters. No radical transformations. If you don't communicate before marriage, you will not communicate after marriage. And there's nothing magical about putting the ring on that will suddenly cause the guy or gal to open up and gush from the inner person of the heart. I know a guy who married a girl, found out on their wedding night she wore a glass eye. In the motel room, she pops that puppy out and puts it on the dresser. That's right. He had no clue. Now look, I'm not against glass eyes, but that's a little late to find out. I know a girl. You're going to think I made this up. I know of a girl who married a guy and on their wedding night found out the guy was a girl. That's the truth, so help me. Is that right? That's right. (laughs) I mean, this girl did a con job. One of the saddest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. They dated for but a couple of months and never did she have a clue. You get the point? <laughs> Number six. You shouldn't get engaged until the guy has already assumed the role of spiritual leadership. I've only got a couple of more, so don't panic. The guy has already assumed the role of spiritual leadership. Write it down in big, bold, capital letters. No radical transformations. If he's not leading the girl in dating, he will not lead the girl in marriage. His responsibility is to be the spiritual leader. And I define a spiritual leader in the following manner. Number one, he has an obvious commitment to obeying the Word of God. He is a man who lives his life in submission to the Word of God. No compromises. Number two, he is a man of deep conviction. A man of deep conviction. He knows what he believes. He knows why he believes it. And he has a standard by which he lives his life that is sky high. The kind of man, girls, you would be proud to be seen in public with because of the standard of his life. An obvious man of God. Number three, a man who has refused to compromise his convictions no matter what the cost. A spiritual leader is one who refuses to compromise his convictions no matter what the cost. And then number four, a spiritual leader is a man. The standard of his life is of such quality that, girls, he becomes your standard. You measure your life by him. It should be that he can say to you, girls, if you want to live the life that pleases Christ, live it like me. That's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 11:1, right? Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That is a spiritual leader. If you're dating someone who does not have an obvious commitment to obeying the word, is not a man of conviction, does not refuse to compromise no matter what the cost, but buckles under the pressure, and you would not pattern your life after his standard because it isn't high enough, you should never marry him. It will not change when you put the ring on Ephesians chapter 5, gentlemen, verses 25 to 27 is written to us, and it says this. We are to be so committed to the Word of God that we sanctify our wife and purify her life through our commitment to the Word of God. Our life is the standard by which she lives hers. If you're not there, you're not ready for marriage. Number seven, you should not get engaged until you understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. You understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. Now, here's the punchline. And strengths and weaknesses in your dating relationship complement each other. They don't conflict. The strengths and weaknesses complement each other. Guys, where we are weak, our women are strong. Where they are weak, we are strong. And we see the complementary value of that. If we are always nicking and gouging and hurting one another in a dating relationship because of our differing strengths and weaknesses, mark my words, you'll gouge and hurt and wound in marriage. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says we are to become one flesh. That is total complementary union. That is not just a sexual aspect. That is a bonding of two lives to one another. Number eight, you should not get engaged until you have a proper perspective concerning sex. A proper perspective concerning sex. You should not get engaged until you realize that sex is not the primary focus of marriage. The marriage license is not a legal contract that lets you have sex. It is one aspect and by no means the most important at all. Ann Landers shocked the world two years ago when she conducted a poll and wives across America admitted that they would rather have an intimate hug and union with their husband in terms of heart relationship than the intimacy of the marriage bed. It is not to be the primary focus. It is an intimate Intimacy of the heart we seek that is far more important than the intimacy of the body and that attitude ought to be obvious Even now and it is obvious in only one way and that is this men. We keep our hands off our women We do not touch them 1st Corinthians 7 1 it is good for a man not to touch a woman and the word touch refers to a touch that is sexually stimulating We are not to touch our women in a sexually stimulating manner I am proud to be able to stand here before you and admit to you that I never touched that woman when we dated. I respected the most important part of her, and that was her purity. And I communicated love to her so clearly because I was able to bite a bullet and control my own passion. And she knew without any question my motive in the relationship was right because I didn't touch her. A proper perspective concerning sex. Two more and we're done. Number nine... You should not get engaged until you are content single. You should not get engaged until you are content single. If your attitude is, once I get married, then my life will be fulfilled, you are in for gross disillusionment. Contentment is not a response to outward circumstance. Contentment is an inner attitude of the heart, regardless of circumstance. Paul said Philippians 4:11 In whatsoever state I'm in I have learned to be content. And if there is a part of you that craves for a relationship with a man or a woman and you feel like you will not be complete until you get it you are not ready for marriage. Because singleness is a gift. 1 Corinthians 7:7 7, 7. It is not a spiritual gift. Don't look into a mirror and say, Poor me. I am single, but God hasn't given me the gift. I am doomed to unfulfillment. The state of singleness is the gift. All of you who are single at this point in time possess the gift of singleness. If you needed marriage to be fulfilled, you'd be married. Singleness is a gift, and we need to exalt the position of singleness to what it is. Paul called it a gift. Secondly, singleness and marriage are temporary states of existence, 1 Corinthians 7.31 says. Singleness and marriage are temporary states of existence. If I look to marriage to fulfill me, I'm in trouble. I don't want to sound crass. I want to sound realistic. What if my wife should die? What if I should die? Does that mean that we're doomed to unfulfillment at that point? is my fulfillment based upon my relationship with a person you should not get married until you are content single and the third reason is this no human relationship will ever satisfy the cry of the human heart no human relationship will ever satisfy the cry of the human heart we are fallen people and we ache for an intimacy with God and we will never experience the fullness of that intimacy with God until we shed this body of flesh And if we look to a person to satisfy that desire for an intimate walk with God, we will be let down every time. Remember Larry Crabb? The awesome chapel in which he spoke, Romans 8.23, Groaning inwardly, we wait eagerly. And I've been married 11 years and I'm still groaning, waiting for the coming of the one who alone can satisfy the deepest ache of my heart. And then finally, number 10. You should not get engaged until you have a proper understanding of what marriage is all about. You should not get married and, you should not get engaged until you have a proper understanding of what marriage is all about. I'm afraid that sometimes our perspective is short-sighted and all we see are the ruffles and the wedding bells and the, and the showers and the honeymoon and we forget that this is a life-long commitment. Let me tell you what marriage is. When I asked that woman to marry me, this is what I was asking her to do. Are you ready? This is an incredible responsibility that I took upon myself. I asked that little lady to become involved in every endeavor of my life. To stand beside me and share with me every single experience of my life. To suffer and endure with me my every trial. To become totally committed to my every goal and to wholeheartedly support me in my every pursuit? Who am I to ask that of a woman? That is a commitment I enter into very, very carefully. And I made the commitment to her that in response to her support, I will be her lover, I will be her best friend, I will be her companion, I'll be her protective covering, I'll be her confidant, I'll be her counselor. That is an enormous responsibility. And men, when we dare to ask our women to marry us, we had better deliver. It is she with whom I will share the rest of my life. That is an important consideration. And not to be entered into lightly. Alexander Solzhenitsyn made this statement. We always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. We always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. May your marriage and mine never be cheap, but entered into with incredible preparation, understanding and prayer. Let's bow together in prayer.